Hi, and welcome to the next episode of Queer and Divine, Conversations with Spirit and Pride. I'm your host, Lily. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. And today we have a special guest, one of my dear friends, Adrian Cardwell. Adrian, welcome. Hi, glad to be here. My name's Adrian. My pronouns are he and they, and whatever else you'd like to refer to me as, I'm not picky. And I am having a great day. I am so glad that you are, and I'm glad that you told me more about your pronouns. I think that's not a conversation we've had thus far, so that's exciting. Okay, Adrian. so I've been trying to get you on this podcast what feels like maybe a year, potentially a year, like a long time, right? Oh, yeah. So actually, I had a podcast about this time last year, uh, and you were on it. We were like, hey, let's do like podcast swap kind of thing. Um, and you were on my podcast, and it was great, and we were like, okay, now you can be on mine next week, and we just had to keep on and keep on rescheduling, so I'm really glad to finally be here today. Yeah, and I'll let you just, like, jump in. What was your podcast, like, about for people who aren't super familiar with it? Yeah, so it was called the Doctrine Detox Podcast, and it was about the process of deconversion and really just talking about religion from people who are from all kinds of walks of life so i had i had you on there obviously you uh at the time were were a a a church of christ member uh we had several like atheists and anti-theists and catholics and and people just talking about the concept of deconversion why they think it happens and their advice for um uh, people who are going through the process um and and you were on there and it was a really beautiful episode yeah, thank you so much. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, you, you use that word, and I don't think a lot of people often understand exactly what that scopes. Oh, yeah, so deconversion. Um, it's the concept of growing up religious or being in some kind of religious uh, group, whether it be Christianity or anything, any kind of religious group, and you convert from that to essentially nothing you know there's conversion where you go from like i don't know christianity to judaism or something like that and deconversion is taking is breaking down the entire process of religion uh, which is usually the first step to conversion anyway but a lot of people just stop there and it's like okay well i've broke i've broken down my current belief system and now i don't think i want a new one i don't think i want another religious one i'm just going to stay here in this uh, agnostic, atheist, whatever uh, area that I'm in right now, uh, which is where I am currently. Yeah, and that's like an interesting place to be, I think, because I think a lot of people are like, oh, well, you go from like a certain religious belief to another certain religious belief. And the idea of going from something mm-hmm. to nothing is like, I would say somewhat scary for people who, you know, whether it be that they grew up in a religious environment that had a fear-based institute or one that was more loving in kind of practice, but that you know, it's still one of those like, well, if you leave, you are damned, kind of. Yep, which is exactly what I went through for the first 19 years of my life of people telling me, you know, if you you so much as have any doubt that God exists at all, that's it, you're going to hell, Uh, God doesn't love you anymore. Um, And of course, I've found lots of other Christians who don't believe that anymore. If I were a Christian, I wouldn't believe that part of it. But um, that was that was sort of how they kept people in my belief system when I was growing up was um, you have to believe in God. And the second you don't, you're shunned from this place. You're shunned from heaven and God doesn't love you anymore. 
which is like a very scary thing thing I think to have kind of instituted when you're young when you're older and that's something that you learn about you kind of have a stronger set of beliefs to challenge that question but if it's something you've learned about since I mean in your case and a little bit of my friends when you were like two and three like that kind of message is put out um would you tell me a little bit about like the actual denomination you grew up in yeah, so uh, the church was actually referred to as a non-denominational church, which the joke I make is basically just Baptist with a cool website. Um, <laughs> but you, you, yeah, you go to any kind of like faith healing service, like if you're familiar with like Benny Hinn or uh, Cat Carr or Jesse Duplantis, anything like that, um, that's sort of like a toned down version of that is what we believed in. Um, so like... Um, you can pray over people over whatever ailment they have and they will be healed and god wants to bless you financially ten thousand fold um a lot of like health and wealth kind of stuff um which is a very works-based gospel anybody who is familiar with the bible at all knows that salvation cannot come through works and yet in the version of christianity that we were raised in um it was very much you have to believe this hard you have to do many this good acts you have to uh tithe this amount of money and then god will help you and it was never enough you had to keep on and keep on going all the time um and it's very depressing uh in fact i i lost like four friends uh four friends to, to suicide because they had been prayed over for maladies that they had one one whether physical or, or mental or whatever and they had received their healing quote unquote for a little while but then it started coming back i think because of it was like some sort of like in the moment placebo effect and then as they as they were gone they lost that healing that they had and so you know they would text me they would text each other text other people be like hey listen um i don't think I don't think I'm doing enough. I think God is mad at me because I'm getting this back. It's not it's not working anymore. I just don't think I'm good enough. And that eventually overwhelmed them. And over the course of two years, all four of those people uh, ended up taking their lives. So it's a very dangerous gospel that we were raised in and, and not one that anybody should have to be subjected to. Yeah, no, I agree. And that I'm, I'm sorry for those people because I think that had they had the ability to step out of that, they might be alive today. And that's the thing that I think churches don't often realize is that the practices that they preach are so incredibly harmful in some capacities that it literally is killing people. And like not in a dramatic way, but uh -huh. an actual truthful light kind of way. Yeah. And the sad part is too, at that point in time, I was so deep into that teaching. I had heard it my entire life that it didn't shake my faith at all that I had lost those four friends. It was more they didn't do enough, which is exactly why they, they, they died. Yeah, and even that is something I think probably I not can't speak for you, but it seems like that'd be hard to overcome in, you know, in your journey of coming out of that place, being like, oh my gosh, that's something I used to think and consider and believe. Oh yeah, now that I, now that I am out of it, whenever I see preachers like uh benny hinn or um oh who's who's that one fellow who's just uh, kenneth copeland he looks like the physical manifestation of a demon um <laughs> you're not wrong it, whenever i see <laughs> yeah whenever i see people like them just just 
digging into people, like leeching them for every last cent that they have so they can get richer and promise them something that will never come. It makes me angry. It makes me upset. It makes me sad. But more than anything, it makes me embarrassed because I believed that wholeheartedly for so long. Yeah, and that's the hard thing, I think, for sure, is, you know, there's a lot of people at Elon specifically who were raised in kind of fundamentalist Christian, very conservative Christian beliefs, and coming into college and being like, oh, so gay people aren't the devil, so drinking isn't the worst yeah. thing I can do. Oh, so wearing a skirt above my knee is not going to send me to hell. And having these realizations that, like, there's parts of life that are joyful and wonderful and you know, if, if a teaching and a religion and a space is telling you that having joyful experiences is wrong, maybe maybe we have to reconsider those beliefs. <laughs> yeah, when my little sister first started going to college, she went to App State. Um, my mother noticed a change in her because she came to similar realizations to you where like, oh, well, maybe these things aren't so bad. My mother straight up told her, oh, well, apparently liberal college is poisoning your mind. Ah, uh, yes, the good old liberal college with PhD professors who know their stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that's always the thing that I also find funny as parents who, you know, they're like, oh, well, the liberal colleges will poison you. And I was like, well, I think maybe we can look at the fact that the reason there are so many colleges that, you know, in quotations, have liberal doctrine in them is because they're the most educated people who are teaching these uh, nope. classes. <laughs> nope, nope, that's not it at all. It's because um, it's the, the, the government and the devil are all working together um, under the under the hood, behind the scenes. You can't see it, but there's there's a big conspiracy going on for everyone to turn turn all of our kids gay and a, a, away from God. And at the same time, we're going to turn all the frogs gay. You can't see it, but it's there. God told me when I was praying. <laughs> the fact that you said praying <laughs> with that southern, <laughs> with that set, scary. Scary because I can hear it Listen, in other people saying I live in Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do live in Tennessee. Tell me about that because you're, you're in a pretty unique job position right now. Yeah, so uh, I'm an actor. I have been for about four years now, uh, but this job is a little bit different because for those of you who are unfamiliar with the, uh, the acting job, usually the way it works is you get a gig for four, maybe eight months if you're really, really lucky. Um, and then that's it. The job is over and you move on to another job and you do that until you die. Um, but this job that I found myself in right now is sort of an indefinite thing. I'm working at a murder mystery dinner show in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, and everything is provided, housing is provided, everything like that, and they're letting me stay for as long as I'd like. So I'm very, very fortunate to be here and to have that stable acting job, which sounds like an oxymoron, <laughs> so that I can continue to do other cool things like be on your podcast. Boy, thank you very much. And I you know speaking of acting kind of touching on that topic you and I both kind of grew up in like the Burlington theater scene and like with mm -hmm. Alamance Children's Theater and Gallery Players and Studio One and kind of places where you know Alamance Children's Theater is funded by Christian moms like that, that is that is the origin of that company and that you oh, know definitely. it's 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 interesting where growing up with theater and also religion at the same time like Alameda Children's Theater only rehearses in church basements. Like, that's where they rehearse. Mm -hmm. 
And not, (laughs) (laughs) and so I think that like even subtly people who were not religious sort of like became religious by being in those shows, like because of the people who were producing them and and directing them, you just like sort of became more Christian, which is like a weird kind of like connection to have to theater, but it's definitely one that was very prominent in that community. That's an interesting observation. It's not something that I would have ever known because I was probably one of the most religious people in that group. So I wouldn't have been able to differentiate the religious from the irreligious there. I was just being me. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Um, The only kind of reason I bring it up is like, do have you kind of noticed a difference in the work that you're doing right now to the kind of work in theater you had growing up? Oh, most definitely. Um, Probably because, like you said, in our childhood, doing theater in small-town Burlington, North Carolina, it was all very religious-based, and all the directors, all the producers, everybody was some sort of, like, religious mom. And so that's what I thought the work would be like. That was the impression that I got for all of theater, was that it would be like, okay, like, we're not imposing a religion, but we're all Christians, right, right, right? Mm -hmm. Well... Since I've started working professionally, it's been the exact opposite. It's like, uh, okay, so we're all working here, but and you know, you you say you're Christian, you say you're whatever, but we're all kind of, you know, we're all kind of just whatever, right? We're kind of like an atheist agnostic, right, 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 which is more often than not been the case. You know, you meet more irreligious people doing theater than most other jobs I've ever done in my life. Yeah, because in theater, there's a lot more people who, you know, grew up and in, in being in theater and saw unique storylines that fit them. And when they were not part of the general population, they were kind of outcasts, honestly. And so I see in theater people who are queer and who are gender nonconforming and maybe style and how they dress and that that's far more accepted in the theater realm because so many roles in theater reflect those values, which is why I always found it so funny that hyper hyper like uber religious groups would be parts of theaters where i was like you know there are lots of gay people here right like you do that's something you've considered (laughs) right yeah i think i told a similar story when uh i was i was talking to i think adrian beck on my podcast where um i i just assumed everyone was some kind of christian or some kind of religious and then i met a gay man who he went to church, but I don't think he was, like, super religious. But I didn't know he was gay. I just thought he was a person because he wasn't this horrible demon person that I was led to believe that gay people are. Yeah. Um, and I think he had more to do with my deconversion. Just him being around had more to do with my deconversion than uh, anything else, really. And how old at were you? At least at that time. How old were you? Oh, no. Uh, I think I was maybe 11 or 12 when I met him. So, like, a very formative age. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And I feel like 10 to, like, 14, 15 is that place where you're, like, you're not a kid anymore. You're not really a teenager because you can't really drive. But you're starting to, like, form your own opinions, whether that be, like, more verbally or more inwardly. And it's always so interesting to see, like, what people end up shaping that reality for you. Yeah, you you start getting a really basic understanding of how the world works when you when you start to hit like 13, 14 years old, um, which is why you see a lot of angsty early teenagers because they're like, oh wow, actually the world sucks. <laughs> um, but uh, definitely, definitely uh, hitting hitting that age, especially uh, seeing see 
I'm rambling. Hitting that age and seeing something that you thought was supposed to be really evil and realizing that it's not is like, hold up. Now I have to question everything. Yeah, you can't like take out one piece of something you were thought to believe because all of it is a structure. You can't take a brick out yeah. of the Jenga thing when it's already crumbling without the whole thing going. Yeah, it's a very, very... It's like an endgame Jenga tower. <laughs> Terrifying, in fact. <laughs> Definitely so. And we've we've touched on it a little bit so far, kind of in like looking at theater, looking at gay people, and kind of what interactions you've had when you were still pretty deep in this religious ideology. Um, but like you are part of the community yourself. Yes, yes. So I am bisexual. Um, and my story there is really, really interesting. Uh, I have a whole typed out, it's basically a novella at this point. Um, <laughs> but the Cliff Notes version is, uh, you know, I was, I was raised super, super, super Christian home. Very, we were all homeschooled. So the only time we ever left the house was either to go to theater or to go to church. And that was it. And, um, so being being in that very churchy, very homey life, and sometimes I had theater, but that was kind of a second thing, um, y you get taught some really interesting stuff. And I have a hard time talking about this because I don't want to speak ill of her, but my mother was not the best person to raise me. She was uh, very emotionally abusive, and um, she would... <laughs> Obviously, when, when we would when we would mess up and we would break the rules or something like that, we would get spankings, we would get things taken away. But a staple of hers also was beratement, and I don't think she knew that she was doing it because whenever I've brought it up with her, she just she didn't know it happened. She just said that never happened. But um, I think I got it the most because I was the oldest boy, and um, she didn't like my dad, so I kind of reminded her of him. So she would, she would dig into me a lot, even if I didn't break the rules. And because of that, I, I grew up believing that I was incapable of being loved. Like that was just the last thing on anybody's mind was just uh, like, hang on a second, I'm formulating my thought. The first thing in your, on your list is to kill yourself. Then after that is to love me. You know, it's like I, I, I am the worst torture that anyone could ever want because of how my mother spoke to me when I was a child. And it wasn't until I got job working at Bush Gardens in Williamsburg that I came to realize, oh, maybe I'm not that bad. You know, because I was surrounded by all of these people of different religious belief systems, of different walks of life, and I came to realize that the theater world is basically the island of misfit toys, and so I fit right in with the misfits, and I wasn't really that bad. And um, I don't know, I was just shown genuine love through that, and I came to realize, oh, I, I'm not asexual at all. That's what I thought I was. I'm not asexual. I just thought that I wasn't worthy of being loved. Um, and after a lot of thought, a lot of processing, a lot of journaling, journaling really got me through it, <laughs> was um, I came to realize I'm not asexual at all. I feel like I could love anybody who came my way. So I sort of define myself as bisexual. I think that might be more pansexual. If I'm being honest with you, Lily, I'm not really sure what the difference is. 
But um <laughs> So I can tell you the difference. Um basically the difference is that bisexual people are attracted to like more of the binary genders, like male and female, and pansexual attracted to not technically all people, but they have the ability to be attracted to all types of people, whether they be, you know, trans, gender nonconforming, you know, whatever, whatever. Um, I often see it play out where people bisexual people really like to see people who fit into not like a like you know oh girls with long hair or boys with short hair but that they um they fit more into a gender binary where you can say oh i'm dating a girl i'm dating a boy versus pansexual like oh i'm dating a person and so okay but i also think that you can decide your own label and just explain through it so people who are queer for example it's an umbrella term but it also is an identity term so you can be both and you can say I'm queer, but like here's how it affects me. And so I like the idea that you can like be like, this is my label and like whatever. Because, you know, labels do not define people. People define people. Right. Yeah. So you be whatever yeah, you want to be. Something that I've been thinking about a lot lately is our generation and uh, labeling things, which is fine. It's an identifier. You know, it's part of your identity. That's great. But I don't know, like to, to sit there and say, okay, I am atheist, bisexual, this, that, the other, whatever, whatever. Um, I feel like that is just something of our generation and it's not necessarily a good or bad thing. It can just get frustrating when you're still working through that and you don't know what you're called to call yourself yet. Yeah, and if you don't know what to call yourself, it's kind of hard to explain to other people, especially because so much of, I personally feel, the LGBTQ community is very much like, a, oh, you know, oh, like lesbians get this or bisexuals get this and like the kind of tropes and, you know, stereotypes that are often perpetuated by ourselves. Like, you know, oh, lesbians yeah. like can drive really well and are like good at fixing things. And I've met lesbians who like, you could hold a wrench out and they'd be like, I have no what the fuck idea that is. <laughs> Couldn't tell you. <laughs> and so I'm kind of like, I'm hoping that the younger generations in this community who are now coming out at record rates, like when we were younger, coming out under the age of like 17 was like unheard of. It didn't happen. And now I have like 12 yeah. year olds who I babysit who are like, I'm bisexual. And I'm like, and I, I'm trying to be, like, accepting and inclusive, but I'm like, damn, like, how do you know that at 12? But then I have to remind myself, <laughs> how did you know, how do straight people know when they're eight that they have a crush on a cute girl with brown hair, right? So right. breaking that down for myself has been hard and trying to figure out how I can best support younger generations of people who are doing things differently than I did. And that's weird to kind of think about. Yeah. And I'm not quite sure if i like it yet just you know when 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 a community that you're in starts to shift and you're not shifting with it as fast as it is it's kind of like a weird realization to have like oh things labels terms people are moving and i'm not like moving as fast as they are yeah i get you i feel like though you know you were talking about you know you're you're, you're seven years old how do you know i feel like had I not been subjected to the abuse that I was, I would have known a lot earlier too. Um, just because like in, in thinking about my childhood and like who I thought was attractive and things like that, there were several times when I was younger and like, <laughs> I know this is a stereotype for sure, but like the Disney villain would come on screen and I'd be like, Oh no, this better not awaken anything in me. <laughs> <laughs> 
Why was it always Disney villains? It was never the like I protagonists I ever. I guess I guess it's because we could relate to the villain more because they have a story. They have like actual baggage that they're cl- carrying, and that's why they're the villain. Whereas the hero is always like, "Ah, oh, la di da, I'm the hero, and oh, oh, some bad thing happened to me, but this is the story. This is the bad thing, and I'm working to fix it." Yeah, it's also hard because there's very few. I think for me, I was more attracted to the protagonists as a younger person, just because th- if you think about it. There's really not that many women who are villains who are not made to be ugly. And, like, in the sense of, like, I mean, Maleficent, Ursula are two very prime examples. Like, they're not meant to be, like, pretty attractive people. But then, like, Gaston is hot. We can agree on that fact. He is meant to be an attractive... He's he's not an attractive personality, but physically he is. So, like, my girl crushes were, in order, Esmeralda, Belle, and Rapunzel. That... Just oh down the God. line. Because, <laughs> like, how can you not? They're they're spunky and, like, fiery, passionate people. And I feel like I just wanted to see those types of roles reflected back at me. But, like, with queer characters. And I still want that. I want there to be more queer representation that is, like, accurately and healthily done. Yeah, I get you. I feel like... Unfortunately, we're not going to see that for a while. Not not on a lack of like Disney's trying or anything like that. But do you remember when Finding Dory came out? And yes. there was like a half of a second in the movie where there were two women who were at the zoo together. Mm-hmm. And it's not defined that they're in a relationship. They, they could just be two moms on a mom trip. But like the internet blew up but they had a baby oh no it's lesbians they can't be lesbians that's my movie (laughs) yeah but they had a baby like in the movie they're 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 strolling their baby stroller so like that's why people were so pissed off it wasn't the idea that i mean yes it's the idea of lesbians but it's the idea of lesbians with a kid it show it showed that lesbians have children and that's like absolutely against god like, you can be lesbians in your own secret thing, but when you bring children into it, you're you're just teaching children this terrible, sinful... That was why people were so pissed off, which I find so interesting. Like, you wouldn't be that mad if it was just lesbians in a movie. When they have children, start a riot. Yeah. Which... It's so weird. Like, oh, you can't be a lesbian and have a kid because you're going to raise that kid to think being a lesbian's okay. And you're well, like, yeah, yeah. And the same way that, like, if you're black parents, you're probably gonna not teach your children to be racist. <laughs> like, same thing applies. <laughs> you're not gonna teach your children to have hateful views of the identities you hold as their parents. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Which is um, a, a point that I wanted to bring up. Yeah. Uh, actually, was um, sort of, sort of a. a, a a, sort of a different subject, but it, it makes sense in this context of how, like, a lot of people, when they read the Bible, always think that they are the Esther or the David or the Job, and they never once think that they are Pharaoh or Hamish or anybody like that. Yeah. Like, in in in, in cases like this where there's other people who just want to be themselves, they just want to live their life, they're not hurting anybody, it's always the straight white Christians, well, 
it's not always, I'm not going to generalize, but a lot of the Often. time <laughs> it is the straight white Christians who are coming at them, who are saying, no, this is bad, you're bad, that's wrong, this is the worst thing, and they're not doing anything to harm anybody, but those straight white Christians think that they are being David slaying Goliath right now, when in reality they are the ones who are the Goliath. Yeah. And I feel like people need to realize that they're capable of being evil no matter what they believe in. Yeah, and the other thing I think needs to be added is that, like, you know, if you are part of a large majority of hateful people, right, you are by default yeah. going to be the Goliath because David is the David is the standalone who is doing something brave and defeating something much bigger than himself. That is the story that we're trying to get. That's that's what we need to be bringing out of that story. So, you in no capacity are this tiny little meek person if you're fighting like a twelve year old gay kid in school. You you, you oh, are misinterpreting that story in massive proportions if you believe that by harming and belittling youth trans and like gay youth really like in schools with gender confirming name changes things like that if, if your response is to scoff and laugh you're bullying children at the end of the day like that's something that you are talking about being proud of which is always such a, yeah. a you know if you're going to be rude to a gay adult again you're still gross but that's somebody who like is an adult if you find protesting, you know, trans-affirming surgeries and testosterone use in, you know, Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Texas right now, and that's something that you're really set on, find a cause that actually is protecting people. Like, really? Right. And that's, right. you know, there's it's... no hate like a Christian's love. Verse that around. But that's what, you know, ends up happening. Yeah. It's really strange, though, because... No matter how large Christianity gets, they always feel like that they are the minority. It doesn't matter what they're fighting. If they're fighting this little queer 12-year-old kid who's, who just started middle school, they still think for whatever reason that, that that child is bigger than them. They might think that child has a bigger uh, a support system. They think the government made them gay, so they are actually fighting the government by hurting this kid, whatever. I don't know. But they always think that they are the David in the situation, I think because of rationalization. But, um, yeah, it absolutely sucks. I like that we've kind of touched on this story because I think that somehow, sometimes when you use the source that people are using as their hate and read it back to them, sometimes that can break through. If I try to give an example that is something they don't even care or know about, but if I try to say, hey, this is your, this is your word of God, this is your Bible, the one that you're preaching, let's really look into the stories and, and kind of get down to what they actually are talking about here. And, you know... Maybe some misinterpretation that's going on. And I think sometimes that can be a tool used to help and make people realize that they may potentially have it wrong. In, in a good world, and if you're dealing with someone who is of some at least slightly rational mind, yes, I agree. However, if you were to go to, say, a Westboro Baptist Church rally and read to them the verses that they are spouting, um, nothing would happen. I yeah. don't know this firsthand, but I know it secondhand. And um, it breaks my heart. Yeah. And it's tough because it's a situation where people are, you know, as you said, are very set in their ideologies and the, the things they grew up in were raised in. And I sometimes I try to put myself in other people's shoes and say, you know, what if somebody and a large group of people challenge an ideology that I held and grew up believing? You know, even if it's something that, again, I've held on to, I understand, it makes sense to me, 
how would I feel if it was something that was raised to be a morally correct thing in my life? And that's like a hard thing to consider because what if it was something like, you know, respecting gay people? And that was something that a lot of people were talking about in a negative way and saying, you're doing it wrong. How do you possibly view that in another way than what you've been taught to know? Right. Well, I was raised to not respect gay people. And I feel like if I can if I can change that belief in myself, then anybody can if they're willing to put in the time and the effort. Yeah, which is fair. Okay. I'm yeah. uh, Oh, yes. I was going to say that we're getting like close to the end of our time, and so I was wanting to know if you okay. had any kind of last thoughts, stories you wanted to share and touch on to kind of sum up what we've discussed today. Well, I think I think the best way for me to end this is to talk about how, you know, I've mentioned my childhood was terrible, my mother was awful to me, whatever. That doesn't mean that I am a miserable person. I'm actually quite a very happy person. And it's not because I'm working a job that I love. I've been happy well before that. It's because I was able to work through my beliefs, first and foremost. And secondly... I was unafraid to remove people who are doing me harm from my life. When it came to my mom, the last time I spoke to her was about a year and a half ago. And before that, I spoke to her on someday in June in 2019. I said, hey, mom, listen, I'm not happy with the way that you treat me or my siblings. So why don't we both just take one year and we'll figure out our beliefs will figure out how we treat other people we'll both do this we'll both figure it out and a year from today we'll talk again and we'll we'll figure out what's going on and so we both took that year and i talked to my mom for the last time and she was unwilling to change the way that she treated me or any of the rest of my siblings she was going to continue with her what i refer to as religious abuse because that's really what it was yeah um and so i said, okay, if you want to do that, I can't stop you, but I am not going to allow it in my life anymore. So at this point in time, um, I no longer speak to my mother, which I know sounds sad, but she was doing me more harm than good. And you have to be, <laughs> you have to be willing to do that kind of thing, to, to remove the people who are harming you, doing nothing but harm to you. I've done that for her. I've done that for a few people whom I considered friends when I was a child and, and a few other people here and there as well. That's not to say if someone isn't watering your garden, immediately block them, but at least talk to them. And if they're unwilling to see eye to eye with you, at that point, it's probably a good idea to block them. Yeah, and To that's... get rid of them in some way. Um, another thing that really helped me was journaling. I couldn't afford a therapist when I was younger. I didn't really know what a therapist was when I was like eight, nine years old. Um, so really my only, my only form of getting things out was expression. Expression through music or journaling or whatever, which is why I have so many different creative things that I do now because they were all forms of expression when I was younger. Um, but now to anyone anyone listening to this if you if you are questioning your belief if you are dealing with an abusive parent if you just feel generally depressed i highly highly recommend journaling 
And you don't have to write anything specific. You don't have to write anything important. Just sit down and write about your day or your life so far because it really does help you come to terms with the way that you process things when you can see it physically on the page and you can read it back to yourself and think, oh, that's why I feel this way. It's right here in front of me. I understand it now. You begin to understand yourself better. You begin to understand your situation better. And moving forward, you can figure things out quicker and more efficiently. And um, I highly recommend that to anyone, whether you're in an abusive situation or not. Just write things down. And if you can, go to therapy. doesn't matter how happy you are. Go to therapy. Therapy is good for everybody in any mental state. And I stand by that statement. Absolutely. 100%. Well, I really, really appreciate that advice specifically because I think a lot of people, you know, are in a situation where they're not able to go to therapy either because they can't afford it. They don't have the time. They're scared. Therapy is a scary thing if it's something that you grew up either being told not to do, you know, Jesus is my savior. I don't need therapy kind of, you know, standpoint or even just like a, you know, we talk to our family and friends about our problems, not to somebody who doesn't know us. Whatever kind of path that's taken for you writing your thoughts down and having like a comprehensive like timeline is helpful so you can go back and say oh a week ago I was feeling this now I'm feeling this what shifted was it that I was sleeping in better was it that I was doing things with friends more I was not whatever else you're doing it's a good tracking and I think that that's so important for anybody in any kind of situation that's less than less than happy at that moment yeah and an important thing to remember, too, because um, I, I give this advice a lot. People say, oh, no, I have ADHD. I can't sit down and write. So do I. I have the worst ADHD of anybody I've ever met. But, you know, you don't have to write all at once. Sit down, get up, do a thing, make a cup of coffee, whatever. Come back, write down a little bit more. It doesn't matter. What's important is that you are expressing and you're doing it on your own time. Or do a voice memo. I have voice memos where I'll be like, I had a terrible day and here's why. And then I have that to be able to listen to yeah. if I need to kind of go back. And it, it's it's how I sound too. The cadence of your voice can be helpful in figuring out where you are as well. So whatever oh, works for you in that capacity. Yeah. So I, yeah, thank you so much for that type of advice and kind of really going through the ins and outs of your life and the stories that you have to share because I know that some of those are a little bit more difficult for you to talk about and kind of anybody to share Mm -hmm. and be open with and I know that's taken you time to really be kind of okay with discussing so thank you for that um of course yeah this is all the kind of time we have in our podcast so thank you for coming on today I greatly appreciate you taking your time Oh, Lily, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to finally be here. Of course, of course. Okay, listen in next time for our next episode next, not next Friday, but the Friday after that. As always, thank you for taking time and space to listen in with us. And you can find us on Instagram at Elon Spirit and Pride and Adrian's social media, which is... At Adrian M. Cardwell on Instagram. Please follow them. Okay, this has been Queer and Divine Conversations with Spirit and Pride.